What are we to make of the story of the ascension of Jesus? I have never preached a sermon on this topic at all. Why? I just can't visualize the physical body of Jesus being in the midst of his disciples and then floating up in the air to heaven. I just can't imagine that. If I lived back in the first century, I probably could. But living in the 21st century, I can't. And so my question is, what are we to make of the ascension? Now, let me say before we begin that there are different ways that we can interpret scripture. I have always said to my Bible study classes that we don't always have to interpret the scripture in the very same way. We can interpret it more literally or more metaphorically. To me, the final test is this. If the way you interpret scripture helps you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, then you have a good interpretation. Of course, when I mean mention neighbors, I mean all our neighbors, including those without regard to differences in race, class, religion, nationality, gender, social class, or sexual preference. If, on the other hand, your interpretation of Scripture allows you to be exclusive instead of inclusive, harboring prejudices and animosities to others who are different from you, if you are selfishly me-first, other than seeking the common good of all, then your interpretation of Scripture is in serious error. And let me say that the most fervent Christian fundamentalist does not interpret the Bible 100% literally. For example, when Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin or your eye causes you to sin, you cut your hand off or you pluck out your eye, I don't see a lot of Christians running around without eyes or hands. Clearly, Jesus' statement is to be taken metaphorically because it's a hyperbole. This morning, I'm going to share how I interpret the passage before us and why I personally interpret the ascension of Jesus symbolically as a metaphor. Are there any of you Star Trek fans out here? And it doesn't matter which series, original, next generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, or Discovery. There is certain sameness to the way spaceships are portrayed on television or movie screens. It also happens to be completely unscientific. When a Federation starship and its opponent belonging to the Klingons or Romulans or whatever extraterrestrial race that you care to name are locked in combat, the two ships are always symmetrically aligned with one another in parallel planes. For both ships, up is up and down is down. You never see a spacecraft flying upside down nor floating askew at some crazy angle. 
It's as though they're sailing ships up on the sea. They're still behaving as though Earth's gravitational field has some influence upon them. In real outer space, there is no gravity. That means there's no up and there's no down, just 360 degrees from any given point. That's a bit mind-boggling for poor earthbound creatures like us. The pr producers of Star Trek are well aware of that, and that's why they portray their spacecrafts flying as though there were an up and a down. After all, it's just entertainment. Now apply that thinking to Jesus' ascension. If there's no up or down outside of Earth's gravitational field, then why does Jesus have to be taken up in order to go to heaven? One thing's for certain, heaven is not up at all, just as hell is not down deep within Earth's molten core. Maybe therefore the disciples literally saw exactly what Matthew and Luke said they saw. But if they did, I think it had to be some kind of mystical vision, not an actual scientific observation of Jesus on his way to a physical heaven. Clouds, harps, halos, pearly gates, streets of gold, Many are the images of heaven that people have pulled from the Bible as they've tried to envision what life would be like after death. But in the last analysis, images are really symbolic, symbolic rather than literal truth. As people living in the 21st century, we know that we don't dwell in a three-tiered uh, universe of the Bible nor in the orderly cosmos of the great astronomer Newton either. No, we dwell in the mind-boggling space continuum of Albert Einstein. This is the physics in which you could travel through space at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles a second. Time itself would stand still. And if you could zoom off to the ends of the universe, you'd discover that space itself bends. Utterly fantastic notions, to be sure. But that's the sort of thing theoretical physicists believe is the truth about the natural order today. So what are we people of today's scientific world to make of the story of Jesus' ascension into heaven. The whole problem began in the 16th century when the discoveries of Copernicus concerning the movement of heavenly bodies overthrew the then commonly accepted Ptolemaic theories of the universe. Copernicus taught that the earth was neither flat nor the center of the universe, but was instead spherical in shape and moved in on its own axis around the sun. Such a view of the universe, which we take for granted today, was absolutely devastating to the worldview of his day. 
After all, the earth looks flat. It looks as though the sun revolves around the earth. But Copernicus turned all of the conventional wisdom upside down. For this, he was denounced by scientists and theologians, as well as ordinary people of his day. If this new astronomy is true, people said, people on the other side of the earth must be walking on their heads and their feet must be up in the air. About 75 years later, Galileo sought to validate Copernicus' theories through the use of the telescope. The people refused to look into the thing, saying that it was the instrument of the devil designed only to confuse people. Galileo was called on the carpet by the Pope and ordered to recant his quaint notion that the earth moved around the sun. Not being the stuff of which martyrs are made, he took it all back. But as he was leaving, he is said to have muttered under his breath, nevertheless, it still moves. Responding to mounting controversies over theology, astronomy, and philosophy, the Roman Inquisition tried Galileo in 1633 and found him vehemently suspect of heresy, sentencing him to indefinite imprisonment. Galileo was kept under house arrest until his death in 1642. It wasn't until 1822, or 189 years later, that the Pope officially gave the earth permission to revolve around the sun. What then are we to make of the ascension of Jesus? I would suggest that the truth of that language is not spatial, but spiritual. It is not related to a position in space, but to the language of what theologians call sacred myth. Myth, as the word is used by theologians, does not mean something that is true, rather it means something that is profoundly true, but true on such a deep level that it can only be used through the language of metaphor and symbol. Indeed, myth may be the closest thing to absolute truth that any of us can ever know. The language of sacred myth is closer to the language of poetry than it is to prose. And poetry is often truer than prose. At the trial of Galileo, one of the lawyers for the defense said some profound words which would have done Christians well to remember over the centuries. He said, one does not read the Bible in order to find out how the heavens go, but how to go to heaven. The church and many Christians might have been saved a lot of embarrassing moments if we had only remembered that. The biblical stories are to be read theologically not scientifically. When you read the story of the ascension theologically, 
you find that the story really does have something to say to our world, a world which is far more familiar with astronauts than with angels, more familiar with space shuttles blasting off in the heavens than with Jesus' ascension to heaven. I would like for you to consider the possibility that the ascension was not a movement in space at all. As I said, the truth of this story for me is spiritual, not spatial. The difference between Jesus and the astronauts is not that the astronauts came back while Jesus somehow, somehow kept going on so that now after nearly 2,000 light years, he is somewhere in the midst of the Milky Way. It must mean something more, something deeper, something far more profound than that. Let's give the biblical writers credit for a little poetic imagination. In the Bible, up is used metaphorically to refer to the closeness of God. Up denotes majesty, glory, dominion, and power. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, said the prophet Isaiah, when he experienced God's presence in the temple. Such metaphorical use of language ought not to bother us. We use that language all of the time today. We say that the sun rises and the sun sets, but in our reflective moments, we know that, that there is no such thing. We also speak of feeling up and feeling down, and we understand what we mean. It's like the conversation a man had with the manager of a hotel where he and his wife were staying. The manager inquired about the man's wife, and he told him that his wife was a bit under the weather. The next day, the manager greeted him by saying, I hope that your wife, your wife is over the weather. Can you see what problems we can have when we take metaphorical language literally? What we need to ask is this. What is the truth that the idea of the ascension is trying to express to us? And the answer is that for those early Christians, these words were a, were a glorious affirmation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember, Lord means boss. They proclaim the good news that Christ is one with God in the governance of the universe. They were trying to say something about cosmology, not about cosmology, but about Christology. They were trying to say that though Jesus was no longer with them in the flesh, he still lives in the presence of God. Luke says in the book of Acts that a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, unless we understand what cloud means in the Bible, we will never understand this. The cloud was an ancient symbol of the invisible presence of God. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, the children of Israel were guided by a pillar of cloud by day 
and a pillar of fire by night. God spoke to Moses in the pillar of a cloud. The cloud was for them a symbol of God's in, invisible presence and a veil to hide the strength and the power of God from overwhelming them. Because Jesus had gone to be with God, they believed. He reigns with God over the universe. Now they had a clue to how the whole human story is going to come out. No wonder we read that after Jesus ascended into the heavens, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. I would suggest that the ascension is just another way of saying what the early Christians said in their very first creed, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is boss. The quality of life which we see in him is a clue to the nature of God. Jesus is Lord. Only three words, but what explosive words they were. For there was another person in the world to be reckoned with who thought that he was Lord. Every Roman soldier proclaimed his allegiance to the emperor by saying, Kaiser is Lord. To which the Christians reply, no, no, Christos, Kyrios, Christ is Lord. These words sum up the transformation, the followers of Jesus, that we celebrate on Ascension Day. For on this day, Strange as it may seem to us, we celebrate Christ leaving his disciples. Before his leaving them is not, but his leaving them is not a somber occasion. It is full of joy and hope and reminds us how their lives were changed, of how they had come to trust in God's ultimate purpose for them and believe that all will indeed be well because Christ is always with them. The witness of faithful Christians remained steadfast. The God they saw in Jesus, they found in themselves. In Jesus' departure, they discovered that they could love as immensely as he did. They could live abundantly as Jesus did. They could heal and reconcile as Jesus did. With Jesus pointing the way, they found God, and while Jesus was gone, that God that Jesus pointed to was everywhere, even in them. On Ascension Day, we are called to go up, to find higher ground, not to escape Earth's crises, but to gain a vision and a mission that is larger than ourselves or even our own communities. We don't need to look to the heavens to find inspiration. The ever-present Lord is right here, giving us all the guidance and aspiration and inspiration we need if we look but beyond ourselves. Our mission is here, to heal, to embrace, to welcome, and to love. We don't need to wait for a day far off for perfection or rapture. If God is always with us, then right here and now can be the day of transformation and fulfillment. And so, my friends, may these 
realities live and breathe and have their being in you. May you know the joy of seeing Jesus point the way, the joy of finding God. May you know God, the God that Jesus points to, who is everywhere, even in you. May you love as extravagantly as Jesus loved. May you live as abundantly as Jesus lived, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thank mm -hmm. you.